James chapter 5, and uh, we're just going to read uh, verses 1 to 6. And as I mentioned in previous messages, more and more as you go into James, the harder his words do become. And perhaps this is the climax of the harshness of his words as they are meted out against uh, some of the tyranny and oppression that comes from the rich and uh, prosperous. So we'll hear these words and may the Lord bless them to us. James 5 verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears, the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. As the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word is what endures forever. And may we hear these things. Well, I don't know if some of you have ever taken note of uh, both the Old and New Testament of what uh, two of the most dominant sins that uh, Scripture says falls upon a person or uh, a church or uh, society in general. Do you know what those two dominant sins that Scripture constantly in the Old and New Testament address God's people about? Well, one of them is sexual immorality. And, And I mention that first, not because we're going to spend any time on it, but because it's dealing with the lust of the flesh. And the other is the love of money and the rooted oppression and uh, the issues of, of faith that are often shipwrecked concerning the love of money, the lust of the eyes. These are perhaps the two most prevalent sins from all of Scripture that God addresses again and again and again with His people. To be warned of. And and these two prevalent sins, any of us understand, you've been in church, some of you all your life, any of you will understand, those two prevalent sins have done much to shipwreck the faith of many and to bring deep scars of shame and judgment and bondage upon lives, upon families, upon churches, and upon society in general. And why does God spend so much time addressing those sins? It's because we are so easily ensnared by them. As it is with sexual immorality. I don't know pastorally how many times I can count that I have heard Christians say things like this concerning sexual immorality. Well, I can control those temptations in my life. Oh, really? (laughs) You're called to flee them, not control them. (laughs) 
I can watch that show with immorality and I'm not affected. Oh, really? (laughs) You don't understand the depth of how your mind is infected by such things. But as it is with that, so it is with riches. That people... Christians in particular, churches, we, we fall often into thinking more highly than ourselves, more highly of ourselves than we ought to when it comes to the control of wealth and not being lured away from our love and service for God by prosperity and riches. Well, if that was the case, if we are so apt and able to control these things, then why does God constantly address them? It's because He knows. He knows what is in the heart of man. And we look here, verses 1-6, to we see James, uh, for him, this is his third time in this brief letter of addressing the issues of wealth, prosperity, and riches. And there He's addressing it with warning in mind to the church, to Christians. You go back to chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. He cautioned there the wealthy how they are to exercise a a very prominent humility concerning their riches. How they are to be wary of the pride that often accompanies wealth. And don't we have that when we talk about how God has so blessed us. And we, when we think of how God has blessed us, He's blessed us with, with prosperity and well-being. And, and when you say that particularly, and I'm not denying that God doesn't bless people in those things, but there is to be a rich humility because God doesn't bless everyone in that manner. Particularly brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we have to be guarded. We don't make our boast in those things. But it's hard. It's hard especially when we are prone to talking about the blessings of God and our mind focuses first and foremost on all our earthly treasures. And then we're reminded, oh yes, no, you know what the greater blessings are? (laughs) I'm going to say it again in this message, but it's hard for us to realize we don't carry our bank accounts into glory. They, they remain behind. And James says in chapter 2, he comes back to it again. In chapter 2, he warns the church. Don't you be caught up in giving preferential treatment to the wealthy, especially when it comes to at the expense of the poor. And, and these things, again, they're not just passing warnings. When Scripture addresses them, it's because God sees these are issues in our midst. And here, here His language is strongest of all in verses 1-6. to he, he outright condemns the ungodly conduct of the rich as He confronts the oppression that often accompanies those who are wealthy. And you might be thinking, well, that that doesn't describe us. And maybe it doesn't. When you look at yourself, maybe, maybe it doesn't. 
But it comes and meets us in God's Word with authority for that purpose of confronting us. I I agree with some of the commentators who, who do say that James here is perhaps not directly addressing any person within the, the community outright. He's, he's perhaps doing what prophets did when they had to come and address sin issues that were in the wider covenant community of God's people. His audience isn't necessarily the Christian foremost. Obviously, he's writing to the church. But with the harshness of these words, we can see that who he is addressing primarily in the hearing of the church are the wealthy, ungodly unbelievers. He doesn't call them brethren. If you read verses 1-6, to you can see that they're not even called to repentance. They're called to weep and howl because they are under God's judgment for what they have done. And as you get to verse 6, you can see this audience of whom he is directly addressing are contrasted against the just, the righteous believers. But he's writing to the church to hear God's judgment that He pronounces weightily, heavily upon the ungodly, rich oppressors. And in this way, He writes to us because we, we need to see God's judgment that waits for those who have lived and conducted themselves in such a way. We need to see God's judgment is out there to meet them. And, and we need to hear this because we recognize as, as the New Testament, as Paul has written, that we are to take heed ourselves lest we fall. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have what? Shipwrecked their faith. It has taken them away from the Lord. And we heard Christ Himself saying, you cannot love and serve God and money. It's one or the other. Don't kid yourself. You see, the warnings come and meet us. And there are other warnings that really bear upon us. These are weighty, heavy words. And, and though I think though few Christians are explicitly rich, I think many are wealthier than others. Some are moderately wealthy. It's a relative term when we say, what is it to be rich? When we compare ourselves to others, there are many who are more wealthy than us, but there are also many who are poorer than us. If I went by... The Canadian government's standards. I have lived before below the poverty level all my life. I'm still not above it. <laughs> so, you know, it's a relative term. But this comes and meets us because we are in our fallen hearts. We are with that corruption of sin that yet dwells within us. We are prone to using our power, 
to control others, to defraud others, to be self-indulgent, and even more, we are prone to robbing God and robbing Him of the tithes and offerings that He is due. Malachi chapter 3. And we need to, we need to understand that. That's, that's the harshness of these words. I want us to, first of all, as we look at this passage, I want us to consider two parables that really bear upon uh, these verses. The, the first is a parable that addresses the whole issue of the oppression that comes at the hand of the wealthy against the needy, the poor, those who lack. And by oppression, what we mean is that lack of care and concern for the earthly life needs of others. I dare to say when you hear this, you're going to realize just how easy it is to be oppressive with our wealth. And I'm not buying into all of this critical race theory and social justice warriorism that is all, all too prevalent today. What we are talking about here is the expectations of our God to use what He has given to us to serve His kingdom and glory in all ways. Now the first parable that I want us to consider is the very familiar one, Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, the rich man and Lazarus. I don't know if I need to go into all the details concerning that parable, but you know the story. Lazarus was a beggar, full of sores. He he had some form of skin condition that would have made him unclean and undesirable to touch or be around. And we know in that parable that the Lord speaks of Lazarus as one who laid at the rich man's gate who was desiring just to have the crumbs from the table. And just picture that if you will. Uh, How many of us have that one minute rule in our home? (laughs) If if it falls on the floor, you've got a minute to get it or you have to be faster than the dog to get it. Uh, But you pick it up and... Well, this is even more. He's saying, whatever crumbs fall off your table, can I have them? And as far as his health goes... The only medical treatment he had were dogs who came and licked his wounds. And I don't believe that that was a foreign picture. Because Jesus, when he told parables, he used real life situations to speak gospel truths. And here we have this picture of Lazarus at the the gate of this rich man and not an ounce of compassion or care meets him from the one who has been prosperous. My friends, that's a form of oppression. Particularly when you understand the inferences of that parable. Because by all inferences, that rich man and Lazarus were both covenant people of God. They were both children of Abraham. You might say brothers in that sense. And by inference, Lazarus had no family to care for him. He was resting upon the mercy of those who had the power to care, but 
didn't. The rich brother in Abraham. That's the implication. And James points us here to that, to that lack of mercy and compassion and grace that, that we are called to exercise in the glory and grace of our Savior. You see in verse 5, when he talks about living on earth in pleasure and luxury, fattening your hearts as in the day of slaughter, what you have done, and not having, and not sharing, not caring, not exercising that compassion to one who was at your very gate, you have condemned, you have murdered. Not in the literal sense of going and getting a knife and stabbing the person to death, but in the sense of neglecting the needs that are right there before you and the power that you have to meet those needs and you don't, you are allowing that person to suffer and die in their state. That's the implication. That, that's, that's the real implication of, of that situation. And I know it goes on to speak about how Lazarus was blessed in eternal glory and the rich man found his way in the torments of hell. And James speaks about that. You rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming to you. Because you know what God's Word says in light of that? You know what John writes in, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? He, he writes to the church, and he writes to the church in addressing just the very needs of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he says, if you see your brother in need, and you have the means to help him, but don't, what does he say? How can the love of God be in you. Isn't it? You, you see, the language is so strong here. God looks and He says to us, He says, My grace that has been poured out upon you is something that works in you. A desire of compassion and care to those who are in need. And don't you understand that as I have blessed you, what are the words of, of Scripture? Freely you have received, freely give. That's a hard principle, isn't it? And I'm sure some of us are thinking, well, well, does this mean we have to give everything away? I'm not going to answer that question. But if you're thinking that, you're understanding the challenge that's before us. It becomes even more when you think of, of the, what we sang, uh, Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, based on 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. That verse, again, that you should know by heart that He who was rich became poor, that you in His poverty might become rich. That Christ's giving of Himself was the ultimate sacrifice. He made Himself poor for our sakes. He came from the glories of heaven and from the glory of being God and took to Himself our wretched humanity. He became poor. And He became poor to the end of dying a cursed death 
He became poor to the end of being that scapegoat for the sins of His people. He became poor to that end of bearing the wrath of God in your place so that you, dear Christian, you will never ever know or taste an ounce of that death. You will only know life. Isn't that amazing? That as hard as your life might be here on earth, in its sufferings and in its afflictions, you know, as the Lord Jesus says, that any who are in Me who is the resurrection of life, that though He dies, He shall live. And even dying, He doesn't really die. He lives forever. Christ in His poverty has given you those riches. Do you know the context of that verse? 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9. The context of that verse is you are to be giving like Christ. That your life and what you have been blessed with is the purpose that you can reflect the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life in the way that you give. What a challenge. We hold the gospel as our source of joy in exercising that giving, compassionate care to those who are in need, especially those whom the Lord sets at our feet, at our gate. And then we heard it in Deuteronomy 4 as well, in verses 18 and 22, twice the Lord said, you are to do this. You are to be such a person who exercises such compassion even to the stranger. Why? Because you know that you were in bondage. You know that you were enslaved into death. And I delivered you. But you know what else He says there in Deuteronomy 24. I think it's verse 15. He says, And if you do this, it will be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. And doesn't that take us here to verse 17 of chapter 4? To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The opposite. To him who knows to do good and does it, it will be righteousness to him before the Lord. And it will bring glory to your God as people see your good works. You see, that's that's the struggle that we have in our hearts, not to be oppressive in that way, but to be generous. The second parable that also bears upon this text. And that's why I'm bringing it in so that we can hear these things in light of, uh, in light of God's Word is the parable of the minas in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. And in that parable, we read of ten servants who are each given a mina. It's a monetary amount it is, as I understand it, equal to about three months of wages. So picture that, if you will. You've got three months of wages. Just tally up what that looks like in your mind. And ten servants are each given a mina, and they are told by the Master to exercise a stewardship in His name until He returns. 
And you read that parable and, and the master returns and, and he calls his servants to give an account of their stewardship, of what he had given to them. And the first one comes and he says, you gave me one, I've got ten to give back to you. Uh, it may mean that he worked harder, perhaps he did. It may mean that the Lord blessed his efforts in a different manner. It may mean that he had skill that the others didn't. But he labored and he brought back tenfold. Another one comes and says, you gave me one, I give you back five. And they both received the same praise and joy of the Master. But one of the servants simply took that mina and wrapped it up in a handkerchief, put it on a shelf, and when the Master returned, he brought it out and he gave it back to him and he said, Here, I'm giving you back what you gave me. I did nothing with it. And why did he do nothing with it? Because he says, I feared you. You're a severe man. You collect where you don't deposit. You reap where you do not sow. And I feared that if I lost this mina, man, I would have your iron judgment. And so I decided just to put it there and give it back to you. Here you go. And that servant was called to account. He received... That kind of judgment that James speaks of here. Weeping and howling for miseries. Corruption. Darkness. Now I want you to think on those two parables in relation to what James writes here and ask yourself this question. What did both the rich man and the servant have in common? The servant who simply gave back the minor. Well, I think at least these two things. First, Neither of them, neither the rich man nor that servant, really understood the compassion of God. They did not know the God whose compassions and mercies do not fail, even though they were both blessed by God. My friends, whenever it comes to us considering our, our state of wealth and prosperity and riches, the first thing we consider is not how much we have. The first thing we consider is the generous mercy of God that He has exercised toward us. I don't deserve an ounce of His goodness and kindness. How generous has He been? Isn't it amazing, dear Christians, when you sit there and you realize all your sins have been paid for. You have been given and granted eternal life. You have the status of being called the child of the living God. You have the love of your heavenly Father poured out into your heart. Do not these graces cause you to be welled up with extreme joy and utter wonder. Who am I? Who am I that God should bless me so? And when you say, Oh, the Lord has blessed me. Where does your heart go to first? I I challenged you before, congregation, on this. I challenge you again. When you say, the Lord has blessed me, do you start counting your earthly treasures? 
or perhaps your family or perhaps your health you know it Psalm 103 the, the, the greatest blessing the greatest blessing we have from God cannot compare to anything else that we have in this world it can't bless the Lord O my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name bless the Lord O my soul and forget not all his benefits who has what forgiven all your iniquity He's forgiven all. I mean, even we right now, we know we are yet sinners in this earthly life, not free from the presence of sin. And yet we can say, He has forgiven all my sins. How great is that? If we don't begin there, and when it comes to dealing with our earthly treasures, we're going to fall short because our heart's going to be with our earthly treasures and not with those heavenly ones. You see, they didn't know the God whose compassions and mercies do not fail. But the other thing they didn't know is that God would require of them the stewardship that His grace afforded them. And James is really hammering that point home. Do you know that you will stand before God, each and every one of you, whether you are a Christian or not, you will stand before God and be judged for the stewardship of the grace that He has afforded you in your earthly life. And that's everything. We heard it from Deuteronomy 24, how we are remembering not only what God did for us in redemption, but we are remembering that in His grace, He is sustaining our lives. He is the one who prospers us according to the wisdom of His providence. He is the one whose grace has come and met us in life so that we have our daily bread. Some have more daily bread than others. But nonetheless, God is the giver of all of that. What is Psalm 24 verse 1? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The creatures and all who dwell within it. There is nothing that we have of ourselves that we can say is of ourselves. All things have been given to us by the great graces of God. They are His gifts. And we will give an account for what we have done with every one of them. Now that's an awesome thought. That's what James is getting at here too. That's why in Deuteronomy he said when you get that first harvest of of wheat or you get that first harvest of your olives and you get that first harvest of your of your uh, grapes or whatever yeah, the the first uh, the tithe of it goes to the Lord you harvest and whatever's left over you leave it <laughs> because I intend to give to the stranger and the widow and the fatherless Everything we have 
in earthly wealth and prosperity is a gift of God and we are but stewards of all that we have. And such for the Christian, the question just doesn't become, what am I doing with these gifts? The question becomes even more, what does my Lord and God require of me with these gifts? Why have I been blessed? You see, that, that's different than simply saying, Oh, the Lord has blessed me. Why? Is there someone that I'm to be a blessing to? Is there a stewardship God is expecting of me that I haven't quite seen yet? You see, those are the challenging questions, aren't they? And then for us as Christians, and I say this again, Many times Christians today uh, decry the whole issue of receiving tithes and offerings. They say the New Testament doesn't promote tithing. And, and I believe that to be wrong. <laughs> because when you read the New Testament, let me say this. Tithing is the very least. It's the minimum God is expecting. It's not that we give our tithes and perhaps some of you haven't begun to do that yet to understand that yes, God expects you to bring your tithe into the house of the Lord. And and He'll he'll tend to your needs when you're being faithful to Him. But when you read the New Testament, that's just the beginning. That's just where we start. He wants us to be a people who display the generosity of His grace. And in that way, I ask you, do you know your God? When it comes to your riches, when it comes to your time, when it comes to your talents, when it comes to your wealth, your worship, what am I giving to the Lord in service of His kingdom? What does the Lord my God require of me. Because these have eternal consequences concerning your stewardship. And James brings that out. The weeping and howling for miseries. The corruption of the gold and silver that will corrode their flesh. You're heaping up a treasure in the last days. These are words of warning that there is a severe judgment waiting. The cries of the weepers, they, uh, the reapers, they reach the ears of the Lord of the harvest. The, uh, sorry, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth. Verse 4. God hears their cry. James there is reflecting on what we read in Deuteronomy 4, 24, verse 15. He says, this cry the Lord hears. And he says there in Deuteronomy 24, he says, and this will be sin against you if someone who is poor, that, that God had set at your feet and you didn't help him. You walked by and just acknowledged his needs and kept on going. And he cries out to God, God's going to hear. Isn't that awesome to consider? So these are warnings to the church and calling us, calling us to a service of the gospel that glorifies God and shows forth the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And with that, and, and very quickly and lastly, I just want us to consider the evils that James spells out for us here. The evils that are rooted in love for money that we are to be guarded against. And when you read verses 2 and 3, one of the chief and main evils of a love for money is idolatry. Idolatry, where, where love for money, it moves your heart away from true and eternal treasure in Christ, where you do not serve and love the Lord, but you, you end up serving and loving your, your wealth. And that idolatry is often seen in hoarding, in storing, and in miserly giving. That's an evil. The second, and we've touched on it already in verse 4, is just oppressing those under us. We who know the abounding nature of God's grace, well, not only is that to be reflected in our grace to others, we have to guard against contributing to their harm. Some of you may remember the 2008 stock crash. And what some of the businesses did with their workers. They were so geared up on trying to maintain a specific level of profit that the average worker saw their wages and hours cut so that the employer could have his level of profit. He wasn't willing to take the lean year with the years of plenty. Not only that, how many employers ensured that they secured their retirement savings by squandering those that belong to their employees. Those are recorded instances just within our generation. God forbid that Christian employers should act in such a way. Wages of the laborers, they're due. Self-indulgence, a third evil rooted in the love for money. Verse 5. And again, I know we're, we're wondering, okay, aren't, aren't we allowed to spend money on ourselves? That, that's not what James is getting at here. What, when he says in verse 5, you've lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. What James is talking about here is that gluttonous indulgence that we exercise upon ourselves and in particular how it stands in contrast to our help of those in need. Where we can think nothing of spending $200 on shoes for ourselves but a person who is barefoot, we take him to the thrift store to get him a $2 pair of shoes. It's it's that kind of contrast. Unrestrained, uncontrolled, gluttonous behavior. That's an evil rooted in the love of money. And the last one, as you see in verse 6, is violence. Whether intended or not, you've condemned, you have murdered the just. It's where we We harm others to maintain our status. I think ultimately verse 6 points us to the cross of Christ. The just one. 
It ultimately is taking us to the Lord Himself who was indeed murdered. And when you read the Gospels, you'll hear the reasons He was murdered was out of envy and pride by wicked men who were challenged by their lack of godliness. Well, our lack of godliness contributes in those ways. And this is where James comes and he meets us with the force of these words to help us pursue in our faith that form of godliness that glorifies God. These are warnings for us, dear Christians. You ask your heart, where is your treasure? What are you storing up in the day of judgment? Whom do you love and serve? Is it God? Is it money? Are you you one who can look at your life and understand what it means to be on that path that leads to life and understand what Christ means when He says, narrow is this way. It is a hard way. These words aren't easy for us to hear. But when we, as James says, becomes when we become doers of this word, not hearers only, who is our eye set upon? It is set upon the glory of the one who loved me and gave his life for me. And that that translates into a life who can say, as the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. This world and its glory and its prosperity, it's dead to me. I'm dead to it in the sense that having been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live how? I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and given His life for me. That's the life of faith we are being called to with these words. Dear people, is it yours? Is it yours? I trust and pray you will hear the call. Be found in Christ. Know His compassion. Live for His glory. Let us pray.